wisdom raises her voice to all mankind. Listen, for she has trustworthy things to say. Choose her instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. She has insight. She has power. She loves those who love her, and those who seek her find her. She was formed long ages ago. The Lord brought her forth at the very beginning, when the world came to be. She was there when he set the heavens in place, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. So listen to her instruction and be wise. For those who find wisdom find life. Well, Proverbs, Wisdom for Life, this great series, and this weekend we're thinking about ancient wisdom for the modern workplace. As we turn to Proverbs and see how God wants uh, His wisdom to impact not only our Sunday mornings, but our Monday mornings. Two, Two quotes from Proverbs, if I may, as we jump into this. Proverbs 12 and verse 24 says, Diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. And then Proverbs 14 and verse 23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Uh, It was uh, many years ago, I was 17, so it was, I don't know, 1906 or something like that. And it was my very first day working for a major bank in the city of London. Um, I've been working for the company for a year. I won't name uh, the bank. That would be wrong in case you bank with Barclays. But I was on my very first day there, and I was feeling sort of nervous. I've been working in the suburban bank, but now I was in the big city, and I was feeling somewhat intimidated because, quite frankly, I was totally rubbish at my job. I was useless um, as a banker. Many people believe that it was the uh, worldwide selling, uh, mis-selling of mortgages that caused the 2008 financial crash. Uh, I'm now able to reveal to you exclusively that it was actually the appointment of me to a bank in London that caused those economic reverberations throughout the universe. I was really rubbish at my job, and I I was feeling an additional pressure as well, because I was a relatively new Christian, and I wanted to make an impact in the bank for Jesus, but no one had told me about subtlety, and that was unfortunate. I had a Bible bigger than my head. It was a King James Version with a fluorescent yellow sticker on the front that said something subtle like, Hello, will you miss the abyss? Or something similar. I had a cross lapel pin in this lapel. I had a fish in this lapel. People got what the cross was. Some people wondered if I was a member of the International Confederation of Fish Friars. It was all rather confusing. I went to the lunchroom on the very first day with my huge Bible and was sitting opposite uh, a member of the staff. I'm the new kid on the block. I've got a big Bible. I've got my fish and I've got my cross. And this Jack the Lad person, who I could very easily have come to hate without much effort, looked across at me and said, 
said, what is that you're reading? It was perfectly obvious what I was reading. It looked like a family Bible. I said, it is a Bible. Within seconds, word went out throughout that bank that John the Baptist had come (laughs) to work for Barclays. And it was pretty hideous. The chief cashier used to call me God. He didn't call me Jeff. He called me God. He'd say, good morning, God. I mean, how do you respond to that without sounding pretentious? And then because I was so rubbish at my job, at the end of the day, I was wrong. My till was wrong every day. And the chief cashier would announce, God is wrong yet again. Not only was I intimidated and fearful, but I was ill-equipped as well. Because back then, nobody really talked very much about the workplace when it came to church. We knew that we weren't supposed to steal the pencils or make personal phone calls, but I did not know at all how to navigate my way into this somewhat hostile, uh, intimidating world. I I remember that the ladies in the office used to enjoy sharing rather filthy jokes. I was somewhat bemused by this truth that these ladies would come out with such jokes, but they knew that I was a Christian. So when they wanted to tell a really rude joke, they'd say, Jeff, rude joke alert. And I would have to go outside and stand outside the office and then return back a few minutes later while they were all still laughing. It was intimidating. And it felt like my church world and my work world were a million miles apart. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus meets Peter, and he says to Peter, a professional fisherman, why don't you put your net over there? And, And Peter responded to that invitation by doing what we often do. He basically said, Lord, we've been toiling all night and we've caught nothing. In other words, this is my world, Jesus. Why don't you do what you do? I'll do what I do. Never the twain shall meet. And there is always a danger that we can end up living like that. But the truth is that God has so much that he wants to say and does say about the workplace. From the very earliest chapters of the book of Genesis, we hear about the workplace. Most of the stories, the parables that Jesus told, are set in the context of the workplace. There is very clear specific instruction in the New Testament about our attitudes to work and then when we zoom in to the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs we see that there's material there for us to understand and learn from and no wonder if you work a 40-hour week for 40 years and I understand that work is not just limited to the office or the factory I understand that there are homemakers here and you work very hard I understand that there are people who've given up full-time work to volunteer in various spheres there are retired people and so work is not just about nine till five but if you work for 40 hours a week for 40 years that is 80 thousand hours of your life and God who is interested in every sphere of life wants to encounter us in those 80,000 hours anyone agree with that and so as we come to this I believe that this wisdom is so important for us to imbibe you know there are there are all kinds of different Bibles available now Uh, you can get different translations of the Bible the New International Version Uh, How many of you have got the NIV? Raise your hand if you've got that. There's the New King James Version. Any of those 
around. Okay, and there's the amplified version. Any amplified? There's some amplified version, people. You can finish the reading after lunch. That will be great. And there are all kinds of specialist Bibles. You can get the Bible for men. You can get the Bible for women. The Bible for, for fishermen. The Bible for people who like knitting. There's all kinds of different applications. And I recently saw one that I found rather amusing. It was called the Life Application Bible. As opposed to what? Yeah, I've got this Bible, but of course I don't actually take any notice of it on Monday morning. When we come to Proverbs, we're talking about life application, wisdom for living. So what do we see? Number one, if you're following along with me. Number one, let's realize the work is good. Work is good. God is a worker and has created us to work. Work is good. God is a worker and created us to work. Proverbs celebrates the nobility of work. Proverbs 22. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Mark Green, who's done a lot of work in this area of empowering Christians in the workplace. Mark Green says, work is the primary activity God created us to pursue in communion with him and in partnership with others. The challenge is, if we're not careful, we can look at work rather than viewing it through the lens of Scripture theologically. We can view work through the lens of culture in a popular way. And that generally means that people see work as something to be avoided or something that is negative, something we have to endure. In Greek culture, ancient Greek culture, they believed that work was a curse and that eternity would be spent in leisure and eternal play. There are others who would say, well, work is just a necessary evil. I've just got to do it to get my money to provide for myself, for my family. I go to work to get the money to buy the food to give me the strength to go to work, to get the money to buy the food to give me the strength to go to work, to get them, and so on it goes. Uh, others narrow it particularly down to us. It's just about me and my family. It's not really to do with society as a whole. And others view work as something that we endure until we can get to retirement and then finally put our feet up. The Bible has a contrary view. The wisdom of the Bible says that God is a worker and he sees work as being good. Tom Wright has said that God is the one who is introduced in the book of Genesis as the God who has dirt underneath his fingernails. A lot of the creation myths in history had a, a God who was a warrior at the heart of those myths. But when we turn to the revelation of Scripture, we don't have a warrior God, but we have a worker God who actually brings about creation within the context of a six-day working week with one day for Sabbath. With the word work that is used in the Hebrew, it's the same word that is used for everyday common or garden work, if you like. And God places Adam and Eve in the garden. They are the only creatures who are given a job description. God is a worker and he creates workers. And then later on, of course, when Jesus comes bringing the full revelation of the Father, Jesus says in John 5, My Father is always at work to this day and I too am working. Philip Jensen says this, If God came into the world, what would he be like? 
For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? He comes as a carpenter. So let's affirm this right away. God is a worker. Work is good. It's not perfect. Because toil came into the world as a result of sin. But let's get out of the idea that work came as a result of the fall. The fall happened after work was commissioned. It was the sweat and the pain and the toil that came as a result of the fall. And it's not just a means to an end. It's not just that we might get money. I've heard people say, I, I, I don't live to work, I work to live. Well, there's, there's truth in that, but the reality is that we are all created by God to experience the joy of productivity and creativity that comes with our work. And by the way, it's not just about our family. It's not just about me or mine. Dorothy Sayers has said that the modern heresy of the world today when it comes to work is the idea that it's all about me providing for me and mine rather than positively contributing to the life of the society as a whole. And it's not just a pathway to retirement either. God is a worker. Work is good. Let's see secondly, the second thing is this, that there's no such thing as secular work. There is no such thing as secular work. Sometimes in church circles you hear people talking about a secular job and they talk about ministry as if being a pastor, or a missionary, working full-time for the church, as if that's more holy than all of the other callings. But Proverbs says something different. Proverbs 15 and verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Not just in the church building, but in the office, in the factory. There is no such thing as secular work. Over the years, um, coming to Kingsgate, I've shared the story about how I was called into the ministry that I have now. I'd only been a Christian for about three weeks. I had long hair. Can you possibly imagine that now as you stare at this rapidly shrinking peninsula? I had long hair back then. I wore beads round my neck and flared trousers made of crimpling. Does anyone remember crimpling? And brine nylon shirts. These, this was the era of the 70s when a fashion demon roamed the earth. I'd been a Christian for two or three weeks, and I was beginning to feel a calling into some kind of Christian leadership, which was ridiculous. I didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the maps at the back. I didn't have a clue. I went along to a youth weekend, and a Christian leader called Johnny Barr showed up. He was a guest speaker. He didn't know any of us. And he stood up at the beginning of the weekend, and he said, he said on the way here... He said, God spoke to me and told me that there are three of you here that he has called into full-time Christian leadership. And then he said this. It freaked me out. He said, God has told me your first and last names. Now, that was really freaky. I remember sitting around. I remember still sitting there thinking, I wonder who it is. I wonder who the three are. Because we tend to count ourselves out when it comes to an announcement for blessing and in when it comes to an announcement for judgment. And I'm thinking it's probably that chap on the front row who had his hands raised during the announcements. It's probably going to be him that's been called. So anyway, I, 
I was just sat there minding my own business. And on the Saturday evening, I went up to this gentleman. I didn't introduce myself to him. I just asked him a question at the end of the meeting, at the end of the service. And he answered my question, and I turned to walk away. And he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, your name is Jeff Lucas, isn't it? And at that moment, I wasn't sure what my name was. <laughs> and I said, yes, it is. And he said, God has called you to preach, son, hasn't he? I said, I, 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 I think so. He said, well, get on with it then. Amazing prophet, terrible pastor. And I went up to my room and I cried because God knew my name and address. A few weeks later, I was at a conference and he was there. I saw him in the street outside the conference center. I ran up to him. I said, Mr. Barr, I said, I've been looking for you. Do you remember me, Jeff Lucas? We met a few weeks ago. I said, I've been looking for you. And he turned to me and he said, no, son, I've been looking for you. And he put his hand on my head and he began to pray and prophesy all that Kay and I are doing now. It was wonderful. It was amazing. But let me tell you something that was a negative that came out of that. That experience developed in me a somewhat blinkered view of calling. Because I had such an amazing calling experience, that made me think, first of all, that being a pastor, preacher, minister was the highest calling. That is not true. Before the Reformation, the church believed that the only way to serve God was to be a monk, a priest, or a nun. They had what was called the sacred estate. And the Reformation came and Martin Luther challenged that, recognizing the calling of God for people everywhere. The calling of God for people in medicine and in banking and in finance and in just whatever work, the calling of God available broadly. Everyone needs to know that that calling is yours. But I had this blinkered view. I also thought that the only way God called people was to shout at them like he did for me. You know, like someone knowing your first and last name. That does get your attention a bit. But I think God did that for me because he knows I'm stupid. I think God said to the angel Derek, an extremely junior angel, let's arrange for something really big because he does become an atheist in traffic jams and therefore... It will be helpful if we really yell at him so that he won't be able to forget it. But the bigness of my calling and the narrowness of the calling led me at times to forget the value and the dignity of all people everywhere being called to serve the Lord. William Tyndale, 1528, says, There is no work better than another to please God. To pour water, to wash dishes, to be a shoe mender or an apostle, all is one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one, as is touching the deed, to please God. Mark Cazalet, the actor, said, When I commit myself and my work into God's hands, there is no split between the sacred and the secular. So everything I do becomes interconnected and part of my dialogue with God. Serving God 24-7, seven days a week, all of us. And the reality of that truth needs to land if we're to live, all of us, in the dignity of our calling. And by the way, that's not just for the caring professions. I mentioned education, perhaps, or, or medicine. The words of the New Testament were written to many Christians who were slaves. And they had no choice about that. And perhaps no sense of immediate value coming from their labors. Nevertheless, they are invested in the dignity of calling as well. 
Work is good. Number three. Number three is that our workstation is our worship station. Our workstation is our worship station. Hard work is worship. Hard work is worship. Proverbs 24. I passed by the field of one who was lazy by the vineyard of a stupid person. And see, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed warrior. It's a picture of the person who has an eternal addiction with operating the snooze button on their phone. How many like the snooze button on your phone. It happened again this morning. I had great aspirations to rise at the crack of dawn and read Leviticus. And my phone had what appeared to be a demonic manifestation. Shrieking at me, I reached for the snooze button. The writer of Proverbs is saying, if you live by the snooze button, things are not going to go well. And hard work done well is part of our worship. What does that mean? It means... Work enthusiastically. It means understand who you really work for. Build character. Allow the Spirit of God to develop character in you so that you don't just have close encounters of a Christian kind at Kingsgate on a Sunday morning, but you live character in the workplace. Care about the people you work with. Exceed what is expected of you. Take responsibility. Some years ago... I was staying in a perfectly horrid hotel in Birmingham. It was horrible. I knew it was going to be rough when I checked in. They said, would you like an upgrade for five pounds? I said, what do I get as an upgrade for five pounds? They said, a window. (laughs) It was horrible. It was like the Hotel California. You can check in any time you want, but you can never leave. Some of you are saying, is that from Proverbs? No. It's the eagles. I'm staying in this really horrible hotel, and it's about four or five o'clock in the morning when suddenly a group of chaps who had had a time of liquid consumption out on the town and had come back slightly inebriated, in fact massively inebriated, started having a party in the room next door to me. And I thought, this is wrong. You know, this is is not right. I I thought, I'm going to... I'm going to phone the nine-year-old on reception and tell him that there's a party going on next door. So I picked up the phone and I said, greetings, pre-adolescent person. There is a party going on next door. And he said, it's the first time you've mentioned it. I said, that's because it's only just happened. I'm good, but prophetic complaining is not part of my spiritual repertoire. I just sense a party's about to begin. Does that mean anything to you? (laughs) Then he said, he said, are you sure the noise is not coming from your room? Right. Right. It's four o'clock in the morning. I'm by myself. I'm having a one-man party and then calling you to complain about myself. Right. Excellent. What was going on? It's quite simple. He didn't want to take responsibility. Some people go through life like that. They don't take responsibility for their work. They feel like the world owes them a living. Take responsibility. Be excellent in your workplace and dedicate your work to be used for God's purposes. What does Colossians say? Colossians says, whatever you do, 
Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. How might the workplace be different if each day we affirmed that we are going there ultimately and finally to serve Jesus? It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Number four. Number four, we're called to carry our values into the workplace. We're called to carry our values into the workplace and live provocatively. Look at these values from Proverbs. Proverbs 16. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Proverbs 11.1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. Here's the danger. The danger is that we get together... And we affirm our convictions and we sing our songs and we open the book on Sunday. And then we go to work and we say something like this. Three words. Well, business is business. And suddenly there's this massive gap between our values and what we actually live the rest of the week. A Gallup poll was commissioned in 1983 looking at the habits of Christians in the workplace And they discovered, tragically, that in many cases there was no significant difference between the morality and the ethics of Christians at work and those who are not Christians. Uh, Christians were just as likely to steal company supplies or cheat on taxes or call in sick when they weren't sick. That's sad. God calls us to embody our values. That, That means being trustworthy. A merchant banker recently said that the major breakdown in the world economy has been caused by the casualty of the handshake. You used to be able to do business with a word, and that trust has now been eroded. In the workplace, let's do what we say. Let's give what we promise we're going to give. As Christians, let's, let's be kind. Have you ever met those Christians? You just know it. You meet them in the home group or the small group and you pray fervently for their work colleagues because they have to spend eight hours a day with those people. They are correction fluid on legs. Everything you say, they say, yes, but... They love to correct people. And then they show up at the home group and they say, oh, do pray for us, please. Pray for me because I'm being persecuted at work for Jesus' sake. I've got to tell you, it's got nothing to do with Jesus. It's just you. You're doing it all by yourself without his help. Be kind. Be gracious. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Douglas Sherman and William Hendricks in their excellent book, Work Matters to God, said this, the key to bringing the culture and the church back together, to renewing the workplace and reforming the church, may well be a movement of people who are known for their hard work, for the excellence of their effort, for their honesty and unswerving integrity, for their concern for the rights and welfare of people, for the quality of the goods and services provided, for their leadership among co-workers, in short, for their Christ-likeness on and off the job. And then they ask this question, what could an army of such workers accomplish? I think Paul picks up that theme, 1 Thessalonians 4, you should mind your own business and work with your hands 
just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I am standing here today because I saw a Christian in the workplace living out the principles of the kingdom. She was my RE teacher at high school and I was one of her more difficult pupils occasionally given to bouts of naughtiness. No, I hear you cry. No one did. I, I was a difficult student. I was going through a bit of a rebellious phase, and I'd signed up for RE, that's religious education, and I was a, a, a thorn in her side. We would sit there in the classroom, and uh, we had an arrangement. I would give the entire class a signal. When I whistled or gave a signal, everybody in the room would throw themselves off of their chairs, land on their backs, and flap their hands and feet in the air. There was obviously nothing on TV, and we needed to get out more, but that's what we did to entertain ourselves. And she responded to my madness and antics with such kindness and grace. And I watched as the other staff members in the school put additional work her way, because she's the Christian. I watched as they took liberties in expecting her to fill in slots that they didn't want to fill in. Because not only was she the Christian, she was a pastor's wife. I watched the pressure build on her, but it was that beautiful life that grabbed the attention of my head and heart and ultimately led me to Christ people are watching may it be that by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives we represent this Jesus well with the beauty of character well the last thing is this the last thing is simply this avoid two evils avoid two evils being lazy or a workaholic Proverbs talks quite a bit about laziness. Uh, Proverbs 22:13. A lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed if I go out into the street. Proverbs 10:26. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes is a lazy person to his employer. So let's not be lazy. Don't just do the minimums. I've discovered recently that I'm lazy. And I don't want to admit this because I'd rather you have the impression of me that is more fluorescent and glow in the dark. But I can be lazy. Here's how I know I'm lazy. I tend to leave the things that I don't enjoy doing to last and do the things that I do enjoy doing. That's, I just love that. Which is why I've probably got 20,000 emails in my inbox. It is why my desk back in Colorado looks like a battlefield because I don't want to get to that stuff. And so I discovered that my laziness is not expressed in my lack of activity, but it's the lack of priority that I give to things that I don't really enjoy doing. Here's a blunt question. Are we lazy in that regard? And then the opposite, perhaps, to that is a driven greed. A lot in Proverbs about greed. Proverbs 28, 25, the greedy stir up conflict but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. And then Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. As I draw this to a conclusion, 
I was challenged this week by a framed prayer of benediction that appears in a Baptist church in Scotland. So it is that when everybody files out from their Sunday morning worship today, they will pass this framed prayer. They'll see it, and I believe that they often pray it too. And it says this, May the love of God sustain us in our working. May the light of Jesus radiate our thinking and speaking. May the power of his Spirit penetrate all our deliberating. And may all that is done witness to your presence in our lives. When we leave here today, we don't leave God here. When we leave here today, we go with him, followers of his, into our world, a beacon people. May his wisdom infiltrate our lives, not only on Sunday mornings, but on Monday mornings too.